Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. And now it's time for your host, Duncan McAllen. Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSec War on Twitter, and this is another episode of Cyber Speaks Live. Joining me today, I have a couple fabulous ladies who are going to be talking about some pretty interesting stuff that's going on in the world of cybersecurity, and I can't wait to get into it. But before we do, Normally, I like to talk about the cyber security incidents that have occurred in the week prior, but today I'm going to take a brief departure from that and open up season three, episode one. We're talking about one of the biggest cyber clusters that has ever occurred and why today is such a significant day in its history. And we're talking, of course, about Equifax, something that has hit millions, hundreds of millions of people around the globe. This is not just a United States issue. This has impacted folks in the UK, the European Union, and of course, hundreds of millions of US citizens. However, this occurred several years ago, but today is the very last day for you to be able to register your participation in the United States class action lawsuit against the company. So if you have been putting it off, if you forgot about it and let it slip your mind, today's the last day, folks. So if you do intend on registering your complaint for the Equifax data breach that did occur, this is it, folks. So go to equifaxdatabreach.com for full details and to be able to register your interest in participating in that class action lawsuit. So that being said, uh, joining me from the SANS Institute today is the program director for something that I picked up on from Johannes Urich's Internet Storm Center daily podcast. And I thought it was so inspiring that I invited her to come onto the show and just to help amplify that message and give her a broader platform to be able to reach as many young ladies as possible. So Mandy, are you there? Hi, I'm here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being able to come on today and talk about Girls Go Cyberstar. What is this all about? Well, it's really pretty exciting. The idea is that we all understand there's a cyber workforce problem. I think we all recognize that gender diversity um, can can if if we move that needle, it can help solve the problem. And so SANS Institute decided to pick up the ball and run with it. We are running a contest, a, a competition for high school girls. And what they're going to do is they're going to sign up and try their hand at some really cool cyber challenges, kind of like puzzles, 
little bit of Linux, a little bit of web vulnerability. We throw in some cryptography. Interesting. Yeah, and we hope it's interesting to girls because they don't know if they know about this or not. They don't know if they have talent. We're trying to help them figure that out. Absolutely. It sounds so inspiring and and triggering of that, I guess, aptitude and and self-discovery, right? Because I know as a young adult, I, I went through four or five different career aspirations, if you will, things that I wanted to be just during my junior high and high school years and thinking about everything from accounting to architecture to law enforcement, you name it. And it was because I was being inspired by different things that I I saw on television, people that I met in person, etc. So can you elaborate on exactly how this works and, and what you're doing with these young ladies and how you're inspiring them to potentially come into this industry and help us deal with this skills shortage and the diversity issues? Well, you know, you, you brought up a perfect point. When we're growing up, we see policemen, we see architects, we see engineers, and we say, well, I could do that. We don't see any real models for cybersecurity. Maybe Mr. Robot, but that's not where we really <laughs> want them to be going, right? And the girls don't see themselves in that. So that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to give them a vision of something that they could be good at. And the way we do it is we have this free program. It's completely funded by SANS. The schools don't need to invest, neither do the girls. They just need to go to our website, girlsgocyberstart.org, and sign up. And what that does is it gives them right away into playing some interactive puzzles. Awesome. As they move through, they're going to get to the next level, which is 240 different cyber challenges. Let me tell you something. You want to be playing this game. It's so cool. I'd love to. (laughs) So I understand there's a competitive challenge to this, right? And schools playing on schools in a national competition. Is that right? Yeah. So they get in right now. In stage one, if they qualify for stage two, that really cool 250, 40 challenges, then they have to compete against the other schools to get to the very final national championship, capture the flag. And that's where there's going to be prizes for the schools. The girls can win $400, $200. And there's even one team that will be going to the Women in Cybersecurity Conference next year. Most importantly, we want recognition for the girls. When they see themselves online or meeting the governor of their state to be recognized, that makes a big difference in saying, hey, I'm a girl, I can do cybersecurity, let me have it. That's life-changing for these young ladies. You know, something like that, an experience like that, the recognition, and that's one of the things, regardless of what industry you're in, you know, folks will take more often than not, acknowledgement over a pay raise. They want to, to be acknowledged and to have something as significant at that young of an age as to have a governor handing you some type of certificate and, and shaking your hand on stage and congratulating you for a job well done in cyber at 17, 18 years of age. Oh my gosh, I, you know that child is going to be set up for life in a long career in cybersecurity, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, some of the parents are not yet aware of what are the career opportunities for these students. Schools that are not yet teaching cybersecurity have an opportunity to open up that career path by participating in this contest. So, so far, we've got 7,500 girls 
across the nation participating in just one week. They wow. have until February 14th to jump in and try it out. And um, at that point, then we go to stage two. So we've got just, what, 24 more days for us to get every other high school girl to give it a try. So help them out then. How can they get involved? What can a young lady that's out there who wants to participate in this do to set herself up? Or if I'm a teacher or a school, what do I have to do to be able to bring this to the student body? It's very easy. A girl can sign up right away at girlsgocyberstart.org and just start playing. Her teacher can do the same thing and create a club. And so once they do that, if a teacher wants to have a club going where girls will play in teams, that's great. She invites the girls in through a really easy registration process. But we're okay with a girl playing on her own. We have prizes for an individual track and we have prizes and recognition for a team track. Everybody's not exactly the same Perfect. in the way they approach new ideas. Absolutely. And that's a great approach. And glad to see you supporting both individual and teams. I see that quite a bit with these Capture the Flag events around the country. So, Mandy, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to put out there for the program or for our listening audience? I really appreciate you welcoming us here today. We do have a leaderboard that I hope we can post on your post show. It shows how many girls are participating in your state. And, you know, let's face it, America's a competitive country. Let's see what your audience can do to get more girls going in their state. Absolutely. If you'll send me the link, I'll be more than happy to include that in our show notes and let our listeners keep track and follow the teams as they progress through the challenge. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Will you be able to have time to stick around and participate with Jennifer? I wouldn't miss it. I'll be hanging in there. <laughs> Thank you so much. So with that, Jennifer, you are up. Are you still on? I'm here. Excellent. So Jennifer, help us out. Do you mind just introducing yourself briefly for our audience? Let them get to know you just a little bit. And I'm going to ask for one favor. If you've been listening to our prior episodes, then you know I always like to put our guest on the spot and ask them to share one unique thing about themselves that our listeners may not be able to use their OSINT skills to find out about you. You know, it's just something personal to help break the ice and get them to know you a little bit better, a little bit more personal than just some voice in their ears. Okay. Well, my name is Jennifer Rakert. I'm a senior uh, security analyst. I work in the healthcare industry. I've, this is the only sector I've worked in. How do I start this? I didn't come uh, into this space expecting to work in cyber. Cyber found me. Actually, looking at the attendee list, I'm kind of smiling because one of the members of the list was sort of an integral part of that. So I actually, for a large part of my career, I literally answered an ad in the paper back in 02. It was for this job or just working, running equipment in the operating room. And the job literally said, no experience needed, we will train you. And they were just looking for people with the computer skills. And that's how I got started. And so I did that for, gosh, from 02 to 2015. And that was a unique honor and privilege uh, to work in a space where you support surgeons, nurses, 
anesthesiologists. You work alongside patients. I can imagine. Yeah. And when you're in that sort of shadow IT, uh, shadow biomedical space, you are bound to be good at what you do because you need to know what makes surgeons and nurses and anesthesiologists good at what they do. And in that world, um, every second is critical. Absolutely. You know, I have a fairly close background to that space. My ex-wife was a surgical RN, a um, yep. fairly gifted one who worked with some really great talent. And you're right. Every second counts. You know, you think about anesthesia and the impact that that can have during the course of the surgery or, you know, instruments being off on readings. Anything can happen. The medical monitoring devices that are in those ORs or ERs, you know, all of that stuff is very critical. We'll get into that in a bit more, but going back to Mandy's discussion, right, and what she was talking about, I just want to get your perspective because you kind of came in in a slightly, I don't want to say unique, but a little bit different, kind of like myself, almost fell into IT, right? And, and got a really good opportunity very early on in our careers and took full advantage of it, right? But here, we're kind of, we're harvesting. We're, we're in, in this program that Sansa's put together, we're cultivating. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to turn out vegetation for the next generation, right? Correct. Had you had something like that back when you were in high school? No. So when I grew up and going to school, you know, we were still using the Apple IIe's and, you know, Windows, uh, the first instance of Windows where it was a GUI interface, that was so different. And the internet was, was such a new space. I was still accessing my email from a bulletin board system, right? <laughs> yeah. And so when I was going to school, you, you know, girls were going to home ec. That was not a, a thing for, for somebody like me. The only reason why I was good at computers is because my first computer in college, I kept busting it. And my friend was tired of coming and re-imaging it. And he said, <laughs> you know what, you're on your own. And that, that's sort of how I got into it. But when I, you know, back to, you know, my career, you know, when you're a department of one, there, there is no senior me, right? And I'm sure you recall your ex-wife. It's a lifestyle and it's an intense lifestyle. And after a while, you're just ready for something else. And I was ready to grow and I moved into corporate IT and I was in that for uh, a little while. And I just happened to be working in a security remediation effort and happened to uh, been working with the security engineer. And she learned about my experience and she said, we can teach you the security stuff, but your background is, is something we don't have. So really security found me. And that's how I got into the space. That's pretty awesome. So what I was actually trying to get to with the SANS Institute and the Cyber Start program, had that existed when you were in school as a young girl, do you think 
knowing who you are today and how quickly you were turned on to cybersecurity once you got exposed, do you think that might have had an impact on you at a younger age? I hope so. I do too. And having raised three daughters who are all now grown, I'm a grandfather twice over. I having this career, having the success that I've been able to enjoy, not having the tremendous debt that some of these, you know, postgrads and doctorates are carrying around with them and being able to enjoy the benefits of a healthy career. God, I wish my daughters would have gone into cyber. But that being said, let's go ahead and jump into some of the items that we had kind of planned for today's show with you. You know, one of the first and foremost was addressing the complexities of the healthcare IoT environment, right? And I do believe that healthcare does present some very unique challenges when it comes to IoT. This isn't just, oh, you know, my home assistant got pwned into some, you know, botnet army and now its compute processing is causing some DDoS attack against some shopping website. People's lives are at risk, right? At the end of the day, we're talking about healthcare. And I have been very vocal about this on Twitter, LinkedIn, on stage at industry conferences. Nothing pisses me off more than when we have a hospital system that gets boned. And it's not against the hospital itself. It's against the malicious actors. I would like to have five minutes in a locked room with these son of a bitches. Now, I'm saying this because when we're talking about a healthcare system that gets compromised because of some ransomware attack or business email compromise, and you know those systems become pwned, we're not just talking about loss of revenues. We're not talking about loss of reputation. We're not talking about legal losses. We're talking about the loss of human life and the potential of that. So. Mm-hmm. That's why I get so frustrated, why I get so angry at this topic, and why I do see the complexities of healthcare and IoT being very different than anything else out there. So can you defuse me a little bit? (laughs) Because I I know I just got fired up. Forgive my language, folks, but like I said, this, this is a trigger warning episode for me. But Jennifer, if you don't mind, just kind of give me your perspective. Why, in your minds, is the healthcare IoT market different than anything else out there? I didn't mean to pop the balloon. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's really important, one, to sort of take a step back. And how do we, how do we pull apart the the conflation, the, the kind of the hysteria piece of it from objective fact. And how do we recognize the complexity of the business as you uh, explained and uh, the other pieces? So one, I want to, when I have conversations with folks, the technology piece I think is important to, to pull apart. Um, when we talk about IoT, that piece I think is incredibly important. When we talk about the internet of things, I think it's also equally important to recognize how do we uh, define it. And I think it's important instead of 
using and focusing on the buzzwords. I think it's better to call it network-enabled devices. And that has four characteristics uh, when we talk about it in those terms. So that technology has computing power. It requires network connectivity to function. And so that means it's connected through wireless, wired, LTE, or Bluetooth. It performs some sort of a task for automation purposes, and it transmits data to another system. So that was some characteristics that were defined sort of early in the game by two industries, the computer hardware industry and the mobile. And so their definitions varied slightly from one another, but they had those core characteristics of the technology. And so early on, or as that progressed, it became what we know now as the Internet of Things. And so when you look at it in that standpoint, we, that could be anything. Uh, so in the healthcare business, when you look at that industry that is really heterogeneous, we have air control systems, we have industrial control, we have physical access systems and the like. What tends to happen when we start to talk about the healthcare industry, people tend to get very fixated around what's connected to the patient around the patient's bed and don't really consider anything else. Anything that's connected that way and for therapeutic care is under the purview of the Food and Drug Administration, but anything else beside that does not fall under that regulation. So anything, any technology that's used for pharmaceuticals and the like is outside of that scope. Now, within the healthcare business, they have, they're bound by all sorts of regulations, specifically from the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, they partner with Joint Commission. Uh, there's also OSHA. There's all sorts of things. So the healthcare business, because they are revenue generating through certain elements, they do turn a technology to automate and make efficient these elements, right? So for example, going back to the Joint Commission standards. So they look to monitoring the inside temperatures of their refrigerators. Those aren't things that are monitored and regulated by the FDA. Those are all usually your plant ops. Those are all internet enabled and, and the like. So our air handling units, we have negative airflow rooms and those are for our patients that are immune deficient. So when you start to look at that, your landscape and your threat landscape gets very wide. We also have uh, our so, patient demographics are different. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I rant. Go ahead. Yeah, let me just jump in here for a second because uh, I think yeah. we're bridging into a different technology area, or at least how I've always constructed it in my mind, between IoT and ICS, right? Because where do we separate the two in your mind between, in healthcare specifically, between those IoT or network-enabled devices and the industrial control systems that sounds like you're describing now with HVAC sensors and oxygen control systems and those kinds of things? So it goes back to, again, the description of the device, right? Right. So computing power, network to function, performs a task, sends data to another system. So while the actual system itself 
falls under the classification. But if it's sitting somewhere and performing a task to monitor a refrigerator, but it's sending over the network, right? Or if it's monitoring temperature of water that's going to the showers and it's sending information out, again, it's the function of the task, right? So it almost sounds like all ICS systems are IoT, but not all, all IoT are ICS. Bingo. <laughs> okay, so I'll let you continue on. Right, so it's, it's also about uh, function and how they fall in the line. Key card systems, the ankle bracelets you put on your infants after they're born, the anti-abduction deterrent devices, uh, those are all considered in a lot of ways fall under that umbrella. And so the minute you step in the threshold of a brick and mortar of a healthcare system, you are immersed in healthcare IoT, right? Right. So also with, as we're addressing the patient populations and the generations, we're also expanding our footprint. So we're not all within one massive building. We are now expanding and we're, you know, pop-up shops and RV clinics and, and smart ambulances, right? So we're also interdependent on cloud systems. We're interdependent on other systems, networks, and their IoT and, and so forth. So, so how do we yeah. go about securing all these systems and protecting and defending them against malicious attack? It seems like there's such a diverse set of technologies and platforms and operating systems and embedded OSs. And it's mind boggling because you have all of that mm -hmm. on top of everything every other major corporation out there has today. And that's, you know, their typical desktop server environment. So you have all that, but then you layer on top of it all this IOHT, Internet of Healthcare Things, on top of this, that's got to be such a complex environment to be able to maintain a secure posture. Where does the typical healthcare organization out there that's listening to this broadcast, how would they approach it? What would be your recommendations to them for setting up a cyber framework that works with these platforms? Well, that's the challenge though, isn't it, Duncan? Because what Absolutely. cyber best practice says versus uh, availability of the system for the provider aren't always in line. Understand that healthcare and medicine is as old as human. So technology coming up and trying to secure things on the front end in a landscape of American medicine where providers are continuously trying to give care, right? So anything that is perceived to be impacting their ability to have availability of systems that may create more of a delay is considered to be getting in the way of their ability to provide care to their patients. So that's that delicate balance of availability. So what the best plan is to try to find that middle ground of, of the technical back end of those controls. 
And so how do you, how do you uh, meet the standards by uh, CIS? How do you work with your manufacturing partners to uh, bake security in instead of bolting it on? That really is the challenge, right? And so, and finding that middle ground. You're not always going to get your 100%. And that, that really, I think, is not unique uh, to my experience. I think that's unique across the board. You hit the nail on the head there with vendor relationships and demanding more. I'm sorry, but I am a huge proponent that if you cannot get your incumbent vendors to participate in the cybersecurity of your environment and ensuring that they are not, like you said, bolting on security as an afterthought, but baking it in, making it in part of their DevOps cycle, ensuring that it is designed with security in mind. Find another vendor, move on, you know, demand more. We can't keep saying, okay, good enough is good enough. We need excellence because our threat actors are constantly evolving. They're constantly improving. They're constantly changing the game. And we need to be working with vendors that accept that and understand it and are willing to step up and help us fight this battle head on. So let's talk about that in vendors and solutions and things in the market that can potentially help the next healthcare organization out there that's listening. You know, we talked about some key concepts leading into today's recording session. Things like user behavior analytics, you know, being able to work with zero trust networks, things like identity providers and ensuring that across not just our organization, but also those partner organizations that we're working with, the vendors that we're working with, the third-party contractors, you see a lot of that in healthcare. So what are some of these back-end technologies that maybe you're already using or that you're exploring for helping you secure that healthcare environment? What do you think about some of those items? Well, I think first, it's important to acknowledge that um, when you talk about infrastructure technology first, it's not cheap. No, right? it's not. Even on the ICS level or, or any sort of major overhaul, you know, one description I heard referred to once is, you know, the helicopter upgrade, <laughs> forklift upgrade, those tend to be pretty uh, intense. Also, healthcare organizations tend to have a life cycle replacement schedule. And so what may be, you know, sort of top of the line in 2020 may not be the top of the line, you know, within five years, correct. Or there may be a, a, you know, some silo decision. And, and again, this is not a unique experience. This is pretty across the board. You know, a vendor may come to a particular individual and say, have we got a deal for you? You know, we're going to sell you these extra 
what have you, uh, ultrasounds or whatever, and it looks like such a deal. The problem is it may be running some version of an embedded Windows that, what do you know, went into life within the next 18 months. But now because of a life cycle replacement schedule, we're stuck with it for maybe the next 11 years and so on and so forth. Like many are so, dealing with right now with Windows 7 going out of mainstream support. Mm-hmm. And yet... I know for a fact, Windows 7 is used quite a bit in embedded healthcare platforms. And Windows CE embedded, Windows XP embedded, and some, and some places still sell it. You, you see it still prevalent in, you know, take healthcare off the table. You still see it prevalent in, in voting machines and what have you. And you see ATMs. it in ATMs. Yep, yep, exactly. So this is a prevalent issue. I'm... I'm feeling myself getting very excited and wanting to nerd out. So I want to stay on track <laughs> Feel free. here with you. Trust me, we have a very technical audience. So <laughs> My larger point here is let's talk about the zero trust identity management and, and network access controls and, and these pieces. When we start talking about the larger infrastructure management and the backend controls, I want to talk about that first, and then we can go back to the backend technology pieces. So when you try to implement something like zero trust technology, that is not the only tool in the toolbox. So what also comes in is this assumption that your identity management controls have already in place. Oops, that needs to be cleaned up. You may have to do some extra work on that end of it. Your, you may need some additional um, identity system engine or access control engines in place with that or you know some other micro segmentation that needs to be in place. You, you can't protect what you don't know. They may, you Absolutely. Know, may need to have some network discovery tools and all that other place. My, my larger point here is that it's not just one piece. So one tool may not be able to see it. And, and the thing is, it's, they're always not so finely tuned, right? And so what ends up happening, like I uh, had mentioned in the past, I believe, is that if, if something goes out for repair and comes back in because of how, they're, how the larger pieces are in, there's a, actually, now I'm thinking about it, I apologize, I'm kind of rambling a little bit because my brain is moving faster than my mouth because this is how I nerd. No worries, <laughs> this is the glory of doing things live, right? So here's my thing. You were talking just a bit ago about, you know, you can't protect what you don't know exists. However, you know, in mainstream corporate America, this is pretty easy for us to figure out, right? Because we have discovery tools that can help us identify Windows platforms, Linux platforms, Mac OS, all of our mobile devices. But in healthcare, oh my God, I, I'm sitting here thinking because I spend a lot of times in hospital, folks. I, I have a lot of health issues that for various reasons, I end up in and out of the hospital, you know, two, three, four times a year. I see a lot of stuff that most folks don't have to ever look at in their life. Mm-hmm. And as I'm walking through these doctor's offices, as I'm walking through these clinics, these, you know, radiological clinics with the CAT scans and the MRIs and all this stuff, I see things, folks. And I see it through the lens of a cybersecurity professional. And I've walked out of doctor's offices because 
I can't get from the waiting room to the to the exam room without seeing six HIPAA violations, right? And that's the kind of doctor's office I'm not going to participate in. So I have got up and left. Now, I can't imagine, I was just in the hospital here in, in Florida last week. <laughs> I'm actually gonna tell you a story. So I'm sitting in the ER, right? And I'm in one of the exam rooms, it's a private exam room. And I watch the clinician go in there hit a series of numbers on the lockbox, right? That's password protected, you know, with the codes. And I make mention of the combination being pretty simple. One, two, three, four, five. The clinician looks back at me. He's like, no, actually it's just one, two, three, four, enter. Well, thank you very much for providing me the passcode. I hope you don't have any illicit drugs inside of there. You know, it, it just, these kinds of things that I see on a, day-to-day -day basis. But now we're talking about this stuff. We're talking about all these devices. I, I'm thinking back, there were probably six or seven quote IOT type devices in that room at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. How the hell can you possibly discover all these things? How do you first identify all the known hardware and all the software running on top? The first two controls of, you know, CIS know what's out there from a hardware perspective, know what's out there from a software perspective. How do you approach that in your own environment? I mean, how can you discover all these innards of devices? Well, what really blows your mind is how do you manage the purchases that also come in and try to work with these vendors that say, oh, hey, let's throw in a computer. But, you know, we got to have TeamViewer installed so we can keep checking in. Like, this stuff is all across the board. So let's, let's try to wrap this in, into something actionable for those that are listening, for those that are in healthcare, for those that are dealing with all these types of IoT devices. If you had one recommendation that you could provide to help a healthcare organization improve their security posture next week or in the next quarter, what would that one recommendation be? Just one? Yeah, just one. <laughs> Take your InfoSec team seriously. Um, read the white papers that you're given. Make trusted partners in your InfoSec team. Make trusted partners in your InfoSec team. That's actually a pretty solid recommendation no matter what industry you're in, right? Yeah. I mean... That Duncan, it's really important to me as we wrap this up, I'm bound by my ethics of my job and what I do every day. You said something that I, I think it's really important that I, I address. Okay. Yeah. You and I are really good friends and we're, we're both, we both fight really hard for the greater good. And I just, because of what I do every day, I really want to make sure that you and I are on the same page. You, you know, there's a lot of articles that come out that, that really give this impression that there's physical harm that is immediate out of the gate for patients, that the boogeyman is gonna shoot through the network and hurt people. And I think what's important is that we're, that we're clear that 
there's a lot of risk and, and healthcare is very targeted. And when we look at, you know, ransomware and these things, we what we're looking at is loss of system availability. And there's definitely a, a secondary effect that comes from that. I recommend my security partners in this space to read the national audit reports that came out of the UK for WannaCry oh, and, yeah. and, and see and read truly what happened and why those five hospitals had to divert patient care. And that truly is the risk of patient harm. But I think it's really important that we're all very clear with each other what the true risk of patient harm is when it comes to cyber attack. It just makes me scared when I, when I hear people that, that say statements. And I want to make sure that we're all on the same page together. Say statements like what? Oh, you know, that, that patients can, you know, that, that there's this risk of death. And I, I get nervous. <laughs> with, I do too. And, as and someone I want to make sure that we're clear. Yeah, me too, because as someone who does live in and out of hospitals on a constant basis and who was one of the original responders with WannaCry and had to deal with that situation head on and also wrote a very articulate piece on WannaCry and NotPet and how we failed miserably, you're absolutely right. And maybe this is a topic for another time, but I will stand by my statements and I do think that we do have systems that are under incredible risk. The same way as an ex-law enforcement officer, I find it disgraceful when we have our law enforcement agencies also attacked, when we have police officers on the side of highways that cannot even run wants and warrants checks on the plate that's sitting in front of them because mm -hmm. their own systems are down. And yes, I was a first responder to the city of Atlanta's ransomware outbreak with Sam Sam, where we had hundreds and hundreds of hours of the police videotape completely wiped. And now what happens to all those court cases that are in process, the convictions that were resulted from that, you know, there's a lot of situations where these malicious attacks that are targeting very specific verticals and markets do have tremendous impact that goes well beyond anything that's a financial, legal, reputational risk. It is human lives at risk. And I will Absolutely. stand behind that 100% of the time. Absolutely. I agree. So, yeah. Sorry, again, it's one of those things that infuriates me. And it's not with the organizations. It is not with their security postures. It's not with their defenses, because I know this is a learning curve and we're playing catch up in these organizations. A lot of times, you know, are underfunded, they're understaffed, they're, they're challenged on so many different levels. They don't need to be ridiculed. They don't need to be made fun of. They need help, they need assistance, they need education, they need the tools, they need the resources, and we have to help provide that. And that's mm -hmm. part of what this whole series is about, is, is helping spread the word of cybersecurity and educate folks on emerging trends and technologies that can help in that regard. And I'm sorry if I come off combative, but like I said very early on, this is a trigger for me. So. And all, all that said, I notice on your lanyard, what I think is the Patriot Circle 
badge from the InfraGuard. Am I right? I'm losing you. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. So with that, are, are you involved in the healthcare SIG for InfraGuard? I am. Fantastic. Do you mind just in your own voice? Because, you know, I've talked about the InfraGuard quite a bit on the show. I think at least three or four episodes I've brought it up. But from your own perspective, can you share with the listeners what the InfraGuard is about and, and why you're involved in it? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. The InfraGuard is a partnership between members of the private sector of all 17 critical infrastructures and the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Anybody uh, can join. There is a membership. It's low fee. You do have to apply. You, do, you are required to go through a background check with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The process is, is quite simple. They meet every other month. There's opportunities to participate. You have access to, go ahead. I will jump in there. Yeah. The frequency of how often your local chapter meets may differ. For oh, example, thank you. In, in Houston, we meet monthly. Thank some you. Some areas, it may only be quarterly. It just depends. But uh, otherwise, spot on. Yep. Thank you very much, Duncan. I appreciate that. But you have, you have a great opportunity to network with, with peers that are either in your specific industry. You get to learn about what's happening on a level, you get access to all sorts of information that you otherwise wouldn't have as a, a normal civilian. It's, it's a really great partnership. I highly recommend it. Absolutely. I've been a member myself for, a, gosh, I guess I'm going into my fourth year. Uh, yeah, I'm being signaled four years. Absolutely love the InfraGuard. And just like Jennifer was saying, it's the Bureau's partnership with the private sector to help protect and defend our nation's critical infrastructure. So if you're in cybersecurity, definitely consider joining. Like she said, it's just a very simple application process. The Bureau does your background. You clear that and start joining. They have a, an orientation meeting. At least our chapter does once a quarter. And that just helps you understand some of the nature of information sharing, what can be shared, what can't be, you know, the ins and outs of the organization. But it's also just a great way to be introduced to the InfraGuard, be able to meet the FBI's special agent that's in charge of your local chapter and the events and stuff. But it's a great networking opportunity. And I've made some friends through the InfraGuard that I know are going to be friends for life. So just Consider joining. It's InfraGuard without a U. There is no U in guard. It's just InfraGuard. And uh, throw that into your search engine, and you'll be able to easily find the uh, Bureau's application website. So, Jennifer, we're uh, at the top of the hour, actually running just a little bit over. But I just want to throw it out there. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we close? I just, I appreciate your time, Duncan. I appreciate your friendship, your partnership. It's been really cool uh, getting to know you. I'm so sorry that we didn't even get a chance to even touch the surface here. What I do have is I will send you a couple of links um, for your show notes that, that touch on uh, a couple of different uh, principles 
about the things I'm passionate about in this space that I think would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always, always a possibility of bringing you back. Just ask Marcus, you know, he's been a two-timer here and would love to dive even deeper into some of these subject matters, you know, especially when we can get to, and wait for it, prescriptive guidance for healthcare. I, I kind of like that. Just came up with it off the top of my head. What do you think? Sounds pretty good, right? <laughs> All right. Well, folks, with that, this has been another episode of Cyberspeaks Live. I am Duncan Macklin. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is InfoSecWar. I'm also easily found on LinkedIn. Jennifer, how can folks get in touch with you? How can they engage you on social? Any links you'd like to share? You can find me on Twitter at, at MedDevSecGirl. Med dev sec girl i like that has a nice ring to it okay so folks that is another episode of cyber speaks live tune in be sure to follow us subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform and we will catch you in our next episode thank you for joining us on this episode of cyber speaks live Remember to visit our blog at cyberspeaks.com to sign up for our newsletter of upcoming episodes and special guest co-hosts. If you'd like to be a guest co-host or sponsor the show, please email us at speakup at cyberspeaks.com. That's all for this week. And as always, stay safe and secure out there.